We have an instinctive dislike for uncomfortable truth. An instinctive dislike for uncomfortable truth. Let me give you some examples. Astronomers tell us that just a few weeks ago, we had a close call with a city killer asteroid. Close call, you know, relatively speaking in terms of many, many miles. It was somewhere between us and the moon. We just stopped and think for a minute, whoa, that could happen. Um, we take these visits once a year as mission teams to the Cherokee Reservation in North Carolina, and the team is forced to reckon with the history of the Trail of Tears. And you stop, and you think, and you have to reckon with the fact that you are a citizen of a nation that did that. Oceanographers, ecologists are warning us about the piles of plastic that are accumulating out in our oceans. And I have to reckon with the fact that my buying habits contribute to that. Or just interactions with my family and friends who make me uh, have to, from time to time, deal with the injury and the hurt that I cause them. And I have to deal with my fear and my pride and my foolishness that did that. What, is all that. what do they all have in common? Our instinctive dislike for uncomfortable truth. Jesus is not afraid to speak in such ways. He does not delight to make us uncomfortable. That's not the point. His goal is not to make us uncomfortable. But he will not shy away from that because he would have us to be free. He would have us to be free. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me now to Matthew's Gospel. The first of the four Gospels that we have, the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 23 is where we are this morning. I'm reading a pretty good chunk of it. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. It's on the screen. Uh, if you want to follow along your Bible, that's fine as well. Hear now God's word. Matthew chapter 23, verses 13 through 36. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets." Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that... On you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Barakiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Well, I think we need to pray. Lord Jesus, this is very disturbing, very disturbing indeed. These are not monsters that you were speaking to. These are human beings who thought they understood the things of God and were very zealous in their expressions of it. And many around them thought the same. These are the religious people of your day. Self-assured and self-deceived. We ourselves would be highly presumptuous if we thought there was nothing here we needed to hear. Presumptuous would likely be the understatement of all. We ask that you would help us to put ourselves there and to listen. And to the degree that we do need to hear this, help us to have ears. Thank you for loving the self-righteous enough to say the hard thing. And we ask that you would speak now. We pray in your name. Amen. It is hard to know who to trust these days. Um, our culture 
and suffering profoundly with an imbalanced ratio between an ever-decreasing senses of integrity and ever-increasing sophistication in technology. We have integrity dropping through the floor and technology rising to the skies. And with that, we find ourselves living in a dynamic, you've heard it, I know, umpteen times, fake news and the danger of that because we don't know what and who we can trust. Here's a little piece I came across this week. The Wall Street Journal reported a story about how fake news stories and photos can have a powerful impact on shaping our minds and hearts. The story quoted Randy Romo, a female photographer whose photograph at an immigration rally had been manipulated by Russia-banked accounts. The fake photo conveyed an anti-immigration message, while the original photo clearly conveyed a pro-immigration message. Ms. Romo had a powerful warning for all of us. We are living in the greatest era of information access. People will watch cat videos endlessly, but they won't take a minute to ascertain whether what they are being told is true or not. It's a call for discernment. It's a call for discernment. We have to ask ourselves all the time, is this true? Is this true? And one of the ways you can get at the answer to the question, is this true, is where is it from? Where is this coming from? Or another way of putting that is consider the source. What do we know of Jesus? What do we know of Jesus? Just thinking through what we've learned in these months in this study through the Gospel of Matthew. What do we know of Jesus? He is powerful in his miracles, merciful in his healings, patient with his disciples, wise in his teachings, courageous in how he faces opposition and the confrontations, and honest, honest in his willingness to say the hard thing. All that is to say that even if you're just getting to know him, that's where you are this morning, you're just kind of feeling out, just getting to know this Jesus you already have a sense that you can trust him. You already have this, this sense, even if in a seed form, that he will not steer you wrong, that he will not deceive you, that you can trust him. And that's really important. It's vitally important when you come to a passage like this that we just read from Matthew 23, given the nature and the strength of what Jesus is, is saying. Seeing the stakes, Jesus says some hard things here, some really hard things here. If you weren't feeling uncomfortable when I was reading that a few moments ago, you were not listening. He says some really hard things here. We need to take him seriously and listen. We need to take him seriously and listen. Yes, well, what sort of hard things are we seeing here? Three, it's there in your outline. The tragedy, the, number one, the tragedy of dead religion. That's the first thing, hard thing we've got to reckon with. Secondly, the sobriety of Jesus' anger. That's the second thing. And then thirdly, the reality of eternal judgment. Those three, they're all, in and of the, each one of them individually is a hard thing. We could just like camp out and just in, on just one of them. We have all three we're going to look at over the next few minutes here this morning. 
these three things, the tragedy of dead religions, the sobriety of Jesus' anger, and the reality of eternal judgment. Let's look at these in turns. First, the tragedy of dead religion. Now, by tragedy, this is what I mean. A drama, a story of suffering that ends unhappily, very sadly. It's a, it's a horrible ending, especially when you consider the potential, what could and should have been a tragedy, the tragedy of dead religion. What does Jesus say? These seven woes that he speaks to these scribes and Pharisees. Well, let's, let's unpack that just for a moment. Now, a woe, just, just taking a step back here, just some initial observations. A woe, what is that? That's, that is a, a, a statement and a, an observation of a miserable condition. Whether or not the, the person that's being observed is even aware of it or not, it's, it's a pronouncement, an assessment of a miserable condition. Woe, alas, is another way of putting that. Seven, there are seven of these. Now, that's important. Because seven, biblically speaking, is an image of completion. Jesus pronounces seven woes upon these scribes and Pharisees. Now, for time's sake, I, I cannot, it's, it would be, we'd be here till past lunch, to go through all seven of these exhaustively. So I'm going to take them in groupings and summarize them as we go, okay? So the first two woes that you see there in verses 13 through 15, basically are speaking to these men in their public, uh, privileged roles have been poisoning the people and spreading their, their, the infection of their foolishness and presumption. That's the first two woes. The, the second two, woes three and four, verses 16 through 24, has to do with uh, their perspective, minoring in majors, Majoring in minors, woefully inadequate understanding, imbalance of God's priorities and his revelation of what he has spoken. Woes 5 and 6, verses 25 through 28, an obsession with the outward forms of religion, of the faith, and no concern whatsoever with the inward transformation of the heart. Woes six and, uh, 5 and 6. And it all comes to a culmination, a climax. It's building, building, building. The, the tone is rising. The temper is rising. It's getting hotter as you go. The boiling temperature is increasing. The seventh of these woes, verses 29 to 36, where Jesus makes very clear that in their scheming, historically, and what they were doing, what he knew they were doing right then regarding himself, that they were betraying their a sinister ancestry. And he's all but daring them to go ahead and do it again with me. It's the seventh of the seventh woes, seven woes. Some strong stuff. That's what, what Jesus is, is saying here. Why does he say it? I mean, what on earth would provoke this? What's going on here? What is he seeing? What is he um, 
knowing about these men and their hearts. Well, there's at least two things going on here. And if you go back, we don't have the time, go, I encourage you to go back. Reread it with this in mind to, to pick this up again. A couple of features. Because he knows these men to be blind. Five times he says that. Blind guides, blind fools, blind men, blind Pharisees. I think it's the, the blind guides that he repeats. For all their expertise, for all their knowledge here, there's no perception, there's no understanding here. There's a blindness to them. These experts in God's word, they're blind. They're hypocrites as well. Five times he says they're blind, six times he says that they're hypocrites. To be a hypocrite, the word literally, its, it's origins go back to, to, the, to, the, to the arena of the stage, the play. It is to be a play actor. It is to pretend to be something that you are not. Whether you know it or not, whether you're conscious or not, you're pretending to be something that you are not. And that's what these men were, these scribes and Pharisees. They're play actors. They're hypocrites. Such that, despite their very full, overflowing, overflowing, overconfident boastings and assessments of themselves. It's all empty. It's all vain. This is the tragedy of dead religion, and this is why Jesus says what he does. Then and now. Before we move on, we need to ask ourselves um, some questions. For the Lord to wrestle with the question as to whether or not these things could be said of us. Here's some diagnostic questions that perhaps would be worth our chewing on. What audience do you live for? Whose presence are you most concerned about? The living gods or the people around you? Whose audience and whose presence are you most concerned about? Whose approval do you live for? That'd be one. Another, these are all diff just different ways of turning it, looking at it from different angles. Another would be consistency, the consistency in, in, in my life. Am I? Am I? Now I'm going to break it down, a couple of different categories, just as examples. So, so uh, civility, right? Here, here, here's an experiment, a uh, scenario. Examine your tone of voice and the feeling within your heart with a person, maybe even a stranger, that you're speaking to on the phone, you hang up, and now how are you speaking to the people in your family? Consistency. The consistency, and just in terms of civility. Or here's another scenario. Uh, consistency in terms of honesty. Let's say uh, you're at a restaurant with your family, and you notice that the kids' meal breakdown comes at for children 12 and under, but your 13-year-old looks pretty young. I'm serious. What do you do? What do you do? It's just a little thing. Does it really matter? What do you do? The consistency. 
uh, that would be the second. So the audience, the consistency, but, but another. Our religious practices, public and private. Public and private. Thinking in terms especially of prayer. So I really hope, I, I truly pray uh, and hope that you do have daily time set aside for prayer. You need it. We all do. But is that it? What about through the day? Is there a sense of prayerful dependence that characterizes you through the entirety of the day upon Jesus and his presence and his grace in your life? Or is it just in the 20 minutes in the morning in your quiet time? I'm, not, I'm, I'm nowhere near arriving on any of these questions. I've just, these are the diagnostic questions that all of us have got to wrestle with that get at the bottom as to the tragedy and get at the issue, the, the concern, the, reality, the, the tragedy of dead religion. Jesus, recognizing the stakes, says the hard things. We need to take him seriously and listen, which then takes us to the second point, and, and that is the sobriety of his anger. And by sobriety, I mean the seriousness of what he's saying, the severity of what he's saying, the gravity of what he is saying. And, and uh, this may really surprise us, um, but, but it, Jesus is anything but stoic and, and passionless and expressionless as he's saying these things. I alluded to this a moment ago, but commentators, and I think they're right on here when they may point out that, that likely the, the tone and temperature is rising as you move from the first woe down to the seventh, such that Jesus is probably screaming by the time he's done. Now, it's a crowded situation on the south side of the, the temple and then these great steps, the ruins of which you can still see today, and there are people everywhere. Now, what happens when somebody in a gathering like that starts screaming? Others start looking and coming in closer, wanting to see what's going on, right? Like rubbernecking on the highway. Is this how you normally think of Jesus? Is this how you normally think of anger? Is there a place for this in your categories? Jesus is hot here. This is not what we are used to in any, in any way at all. And I think part of that has to do with our experience, that, that we are so accustomed to anger being associated with abuse, possibly verbally, possibly physically, that, that usually it's tied in some way to aggression, Anything but righteous anger. We have very few of us have really any understanding of what that actually is. <laughs> of righteous anger. We're, we're experts in unrighteous anger, giving it and receiving it. Um, you think in terms of our expressions, just like I'm talking about like how we speak of anger, right? Um, we we, we, we f um, fly apart, um, we, we blow our top, we lose our control, we lose, lose our cool, right? And it just has this sense of just this explosion. That's anything but what we see with Jesus. Jesus in his anger is, is, is measured and focused and purposeful. And, and it is never about responding to something that was done or said to him. It has to do always with his anger done and said regarding somebody else, standing up for them. You think in terms of his cleansing of the temple or, or his cursing of the fig tree. This is not just a temper tantrum, none of that. Or, or his, his the parables that he told. You can go back and read this in chapters 21 and 22. 
the parables that he told of the, uh, the two sons and the tenants and the wedding feast, he was angry when he was telling those stories. But it is not a temper tantrum. It is anything but unfocused. It's all completely tied to his holy love, inextricably bound to his holy love. You see, we, we're, we, we get we, to thinking about this, and we get our wires all crossed up trying to figure about, you know, I, I, just, I cannot, I have no categories for this. Jesus doing this, speaking in this way, anger, Jesus, Jesus, anger. What kind of a loving, we, we, we're asking the wrong question, what kind of a loving God is filled with wrath? That's the question that we ask, and it's the wrong question. I understand it, but it's the wrong question. What kind of a loving God could be filled with wrath? The right question may seem counterintuitive to you, but you hang with me. The right question is this. What kind of loving God would not be filled with holy wrath? Think with me. What kind of a loving God would not be filled with wrath? Some of you may be familiar with the story of the, of the viral video. Out at Cade, it was filmed out at Cade's Cove last month. You can go and look, don't, not now, but when you get home, uh, I, I, you can see it. I looked at it yesterday just to verify this, uh, of this unidentified man who approaches these cubs of a mama black bear there in inciting her to charge him. The park rangers have made it very clear they're not going to put that bear down. Because that bear is just doing what a mama bear does. If anything, if they can find this guy, they're citing him for a federal misdemeanor. Because everyone's clear. There's no confusion whatsoever between the fury of this mother bear and the love she has for her cubs. You see how those two go together? We don't need to get our wires crossed up on Jesus and his holy, loving anger and wrath either. You could just say the bear is a reflection of its creator in some respects, I suppose. But we do need to ask this question before we move on to the third point of ourselves and our own fits of rage and our own struggles with anger and wrath and how righteous or not it is. And perhaps here are some questions we could ask of that. Why am I angry? I mean, really. Just let's drill, can we? Can we just drill down? Can I just interrogate my little temper tantrum for a moment here? Why am I angry? Where is this coming from? What's going on here? What do I think or who do I think I'm defending? I mean, really. What is this about? Is there anything Christ-like in this at all? Again, Jesus, Jesus is willing, he's seeing, recognizing far better than we ever could the stakes. Jesus is willing them to say the hard thing. And we need to take him seriously and listen. Takes us to the last point. Not just the tragedy of dead religion and the sobriety of his anger, but the reality of eternal judgment. And by, by reality, I'll clarify this as well, by reality, I'm speaking against a myth. And it's a modern myth, and the myth goes like this. In order for it to be true, I have to believe it. 
or I have to believe it. It has to make sense to me in order for it to be the case. My friends, that's just not true. That's just not true at all. You would not say that about your bank balance, your blood pressure, or batting averages. Right? I have to believe it has to square up with what I think for it to actually be real and the case. That's, that's no. Why would we say this about Jesus and what he says in particular about eternal judgment? I can't believe in a loving God and an eternal hell. Well, let's look just for a moment at what Jesus says himself in this passage. We are going to look at a couple of verses. Verse 15, chapter 23, verse 15. What does Jesus say? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And child of hell means someone that, well, that's where they're destined to go. Verse 33, skipping on down, it's the second reference here in this passage. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape from being sentenced to hell? And being sentenced there has the idea of having been because of a just judgment rendered of a condemnation, handed down, sentenced, sentenced to this. That's just in this passage, we could broaden the scope just here, just for a moment and ask, well, elsewhere, do you know who speaks on the topic of hell more than anyone else in the Bible? This may surprise you. It's not John. It's not Paul. It's Jesus. Jesus, that's right, loving Jesus, meek and mild, speaks on hell more than anyone else, and perhaps more pointedly, more graphically than anyone else. And why does he do this? Not to conjure up fear or terror or to fascinate us or satisfy our curiosity, morbid focus, but rather to spur us, to, to urge us towards repentance, lest we go there. It's to, to, to warn us, which takes me to the, the this other part of this point. What Jesus says, his words and his love, it's, it's, it's his love. Jesus' love shines forth in the reality of hell. First in his willingness, his, his, his commitment to warn us of it. I mean, think with me. If, if, to know of eternal danger of this horrific Thing that awaits if repentance doesn't take place. And then not to speak? What is that? What would that be? What would that be? Even to his enemies. Which is what you see in chapter 23. Jesus is warning. And his love is shining forth in speaking in these ways. But my friends, understand this. The reality of hell, Jesus does not just speak of it. He goes through it. And in this, too, we see the, 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 the immensity of his love. It's not just in his willingness to speak of it, but his willingness to go through it. That's what the cross was. Not just a horrific tearing asunder of his body, physically speaking. Yes, it was that. 
but that's but a flea bite compared to what was really going on there. Where spiritually speaking, his soul was abandoned, forsaken by his father. Have you ever been abandoned or forsaken by someone that you loved and you thought loved you? It's the worst kind of pain in the world. Now take that pour gasoline on that fire, and it's ramped up to the nth degree. Jesus being forsaken and abandoned by his Father for love's sake. That's what, the, that's what the cross was. He's going through hell for you and for I. We cannot really understand the measure of his love without an understanding of what he has undergone for us which takes us to the reality of hell. Uh, Tim Keller, in, in making this point, oftentimes uh, uses this analogy that he got from Martin Lloyd-Jones. So I'm just this little cricket. Okay, I'm quoting Tim Keller as he's quoting Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher in the 20th century. Lloyd-Jones imagines a man paying a friend's bill. And the friend has no idea how to respond until he knows how great the debt was, you see? Lloyd-Jones says, until I know how much he paid, I don't know whether to shake his hand or fall down on the ground and kiss his feet. Do you see? So what's in order here? Shake Jesus' hand? Or fall down and kiss his feet? When you know what he has done for you. My friends, the reality of hell reveals to us the reality of his love. And without the reality of hell, I challenge you to really have a full picture of the reality of his love. You don't. You don't. Let me go a little further. The reality of hell also gives us the ability to stand against injustice in this world. You say, what? What does that got to do? Hang with me. Let's just say you take that, t- take Jesus' teaching on this, this topic off the grid. You, forget, you don't believe it at all. You have two choices. Every one of us is born with an innate sense and need for justice and a desire to see it in, in, around us, okay? So if you have no sense of, of an eternal judgment to come, you have two choices. You can either deny that there's any need to work for such things in this world and just suppress this deep desire that you have, Or you can go the other extreme and live for it as a fevered activist that will burn him or herself out by age 23. Or you believe what Jesus says and you know that the day is coming when all wrongs will be made right, which then impels you to work for justice and mercy and faithfulness in this life and frees you to not carry the burden of thinking you've got to do it all yourself, knowing that you can entrust the seeds of your effort into his good, strong hands. So you work against injustice in this world. Jesus is willing to say the hard thing. You see, again, we need to take him seriously. And listen to what he says. Let me put it this way. What were we expecting? I mean, really, what were you expecting when you're thinking about Jesus and when he's going to teach on things? 
Let me give you some of the titles. Many of you know these, but not everyone. Some titles that we find in the scriptures related to Jesus. Alpha and Omega, author and perfecter of our faith. Bread of life, chief cornerstone, good shepherd, great high priest. I am Emmanuel, king of kings, lamb of God, light of the world, Messiah, redeemer, true vine, son of God, son of man, wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Let me ask you something. Somebody described in any one of those titles, and certainly all of them and many more, did you really think that you were, he was going to agree with you on everything? <laughs> Did you really think that there was not going to be a need, that he was going to feel to contradict you on something, that somehow that this was a relationship of equals and you were on the same footing? Is that what you thought? No. Thank God, no. We need to be contradicted. And in his love, he will do it. Because this is a relationship that we have with the living God, Jesus. Some of you have heard me speak of my beloved German shepherd, Lucy. Lucy Pevensey Schwartz. Yes, she is a beast of Narnia. One of the non-talking ones, but nonetheless. In Lucy's eyes, I can do no wrong. I have a shirt now that says, be the person your dog thinks you are. <laughs> it's quite a burden to bear because she thinks, right, this dog is deluded enough to think that I can do no wrong. But she is deluded. She's beautiful. She's wonderful. She's soft and furry, and I love her, but she's, she, that's just not enough. That's not an interpersonal relationship. The only way Lucy's ever going to contradict me is if I'm running late with dinner. But she's not going to contradict me. She's not going to get in my face and call me on something when I need it. She's not going to kind of confront me when I need it. Jesus is willing, oh willing, and able to say the hard thing that you need, that I need, that we need on any and everything out of love. It's this, this collision that takes place. It's inevitable that he's going to say something. Because of my sin and yours and his love for us, he's going to speak. He's going to move. He pursues those he loves, a love that will not let me go. Let me rest my heart in thee. There's great rest to be found there. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are willing to say the hard things to us. You are willing to confront us and contradict us. This collision is inevitable because of our sin and your love. Oh, would you help us not to presume? Presume upon your love or somehow our the state of our hearts, we are full of us, every one of us, sin, iniquity, and transgression. Oh, would you, would you help us to mourn the tragedy of dead religion? Would you help us to be sobered by the gravity, the seriousness of your anger? And would you help us to reckon with the reality of eternal judgment? And that our prayers would be fueled and formed by these things. Our lives, our hearts, our days, our thoughts, our words, our doings. 
all my days and all my hours by these things. Thank you. Thank you for what took place there on the steps of the temple that day. Would you show us this day? We pray in your name. Amen.